This is Shaping the Future by Regent Street, brought to you directly from the iconic London Street itself and launched to celebrate its 200th anniversary year. Our modern world and everyday experiences are constantly being formed and informed by cultural influences around us. From traditions of old to the incoming tides of technology and emerging trends in fashion, art, food and well-being, this podcast celebrates how Regent Street is leading the way with these cultural forces and their impact on places now and in the future. I'm Elizabeth Day, journalist, podcaster and cultural magpie, and I'll be interviewing leaders making pioneering contributions to the world around us. Hello and welcome to Shaping the Future by Regent Street. I'm your host, Elizabeth Day, and today we're talking all about the future of fashion and style. Because when it was built, Regent Street was the original purpose-built shopping street for the capital. But over 200 years, it has grown into a world-renowned destination that's known, once again, for its world-class shopping. Today, Regent Street's Regency buildings are home to a host of premier flagships and firsts, including global fashion retailers such as Tory Birch, Burberry, Coach, Kate Spade and J. Crew, Rich in innovation and steeped in history, Regent Street stores pride themselves on going above and beyond and providing extra special experiences. And to discuss where Regent Street and indeed the world might be going in the future, we're joined by two fantastic guests. We've got Ellie Pithers, who is the Vogue Fashion Features Editor. She has contributed to the monthly magazine for many years and to vogue.co.uk. And we're also joined by Dylan Jones, OBE no less, the New York Times bestselling author who's written 20 books on subjects as diverse as music and politics and fashion and photography. He's been an editor at The Observer, The Sunday Times, ID, The Face, Arena, a columnist of The Guardian and The Independent, and he's currently the editor-in-chief of GQ. He's won Magazine Editor of the Year, 11 times, and he's also on the executive director board for the British Fashion Council. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thank Hello. you for coming. Very nice to Thank see you. you. Dylan, let's start with you. What do you think of Regent Street? Do you think of it as a destination for fashion? It is now. I think it started about 10 years ago, the reinvention of Regent Street with the Apple Store and then Burberry. And now it, it rivals Bond Street as a a luxury destination in London, but also for tourists from China and New York. uh, You know, it's, yeah, so short answers, yes, I suppose. Ellie, talking about streets is interesting because I suppose that there's a lot of talk about online retailers and how that could endanger footfall for actual shops on the street. Mm. But it feels as if Regent Street has been insulated from that a bit. I mean, how is the future of fashion changing? Using Regent Street as an example, I think retail now is very much a kind of multi-platform approach. So definitely a lot of shops on Regent Street um, you might notice have now got little cafes in them or they've got, you know, a little flower shop at, at the entrance to kind of entice you. I think I think lots of the retailers are realising that they need to do something a little bit more exciting than just changing their windows every five days. So, you know, Burberry, one of my favourite places is Thomas's Cafe. And also H&M Home have just opened their new kind of Swedish concept cafe too. I was sort of likening it to 
the way that our readers consume magazines today. You know, they want to be able to read it on their mobile on the way to work. They want to buy the print copy that they can read on the weekend. They want to come to events at Vogue House, which is something that we're really growing. We've got in Vogue, have got our five days of beauty this week. So we've had lots of beauty fans coming into the building, listening to talks and interacting with our beauty editors and our amazing beauty teams. So I, th- I think it's a multi-platform um, approach, which is what the what all the brands are kind of embracing. So it's sort of experiential and interactive, it feels like. Yeah, yeah. I think so. And also, you know, that, that makes sense for brands as well because they have a story that they want to tell, they want to connect with their customers. It's it's not just about having, you know, friendly shop assistants anymore. It's about having a chat service where you can kind of WhatsApp your customers or emails regularly delivering them product that they might be purchasing on their mobile on the way to work. But then sometimes you might want to go into a store, try lots of things on and come away with a physical product. I think you you want different things at different times of the day for different events and, and stores need to cater for that. Dylan, you're a phenomenally stylish man, I hope you don't mind me saying. But I wonder if that's, has that always been a thing for you? Or how did you get into this business? Well, the clothes are sort of secondary. I mean, I got into this business because I love journalism. It just so happened that when I got into the business, it was the the dawn of, of style magazines. So I worked for ID and The Face, and it was very exciting, those heady times of the early 80s. And the great thing about being in London, the great thing about working in our respective industries in London is that it is still culturally the most exciting city in the world. It was in the 80s, it was in the 90s, the noughties, and it is now. I think it's probably more exciting now than it's ever been. And I think that people often hark back to the 60s as being the sort of benchmark of that explosion of, of music and fashion and theatre and cinema and slightly more liberal politics. But Actually, I think you can look at most decades since then and, and look at the huge sort of confluence of, of culture. And it's incredibly exciting. It's, a, it's a, just a brilliant city. And it feels as if people can be individual in London, that there isn't a sort of social or cultural pressure to look a certain way. No, I, that's, that, that, that's completely true. And I think particularly in the last 10 years, it's become as the East has exploded and gentrification has sort of moved towards uh, the east side of the city, you're seeing pockets of the city that you probably never saw before. It's, it's incredible. Ellie was talking there about innovations from a retail perspective, yeah. but I wonder what innovations you see from a design perspective through your work at the British Fashion Council. Well, in terms of fashion pure and simple, uh, I look after the menswear side of things, and I think you've got a generation of young British designers, or at least designers based in Britain now, they're probably the greatest generation of menswear designers there's ever been. Lots of people think back to the 80s and say that was was the time of Catherine Hamnett and Body Map and Stephen Linnard and John Galliano. I was there and they were great times, but today is more exciting. There's so much going on. I mean, it's it's kind of invidious to mention particular people, but there's such a wealth of talent now. It's great. And and what is it that makes it particularly exciting? Are they doing things differently or is it just the quality is I think there's something in the water. I mean, this country has an innate ability to regenerate generation after generation of fantastic uh, singers, musicians, artists, fashion designers. And they kind of, they, they just spring out of the floor. Mm. 
What about wearable technology, Ellie? Because I remember way back in the days when I was working at Canary Wharf and I was working for a Sunday newspaper and I was sent to this fashion designer who swathed me and it looked like kind of fairy lights and it was a piece of fabric that changed colour according to my mood. <laughs> that for me at that point was the vision of the future. But what can we expect on, on future catwalks? I don't know. I think there's been a bit of a reaction against wearables actually because I think there was a big trend. I, and I've tried, you know, a pair of yoga pants the other week that they give you little alerts and to adjust your positioning if, if you're not in the quite the right position for example which that. was quite God, that's <laughs> quite annoying actually. is that a real yeah, thing yeah, yeah it's it really is. oppressive yeah i was really wow. um i felt quite uncomfortable but I, I think lots of designers i mean what dylan was saying about young designers today seem to just have so much confidence and i think they're they're kind of avoiding those traditional routes of doing their time in a big company. I mean, lots of them feel confident enough to just launch their own brands now from their Instagram account, potentially, and kind of build up a following, build up a, you know, someone like Samuel at a cold wall is doing a great job of, you know, it was kind of an underground movement. And then it's exploded into this incredibly profitable brand. So I I think the clothes of the future actually will not be things that look like they're from Space Odyssey. I think it will be a beautifully cut jacket, an investment piece that you're going to keep for the rest of your life. And something else that we're talking a lot about in fashion and the moment is sustainability. The very notion of a catwalk show showing seasonal trends feels out of step with the rest of the country and, you know, indeed the world waking up to climate change. So I think what brands are doing is returning to designs and models that will will stay in your wardrobe for a very long time that you're not going to wear once and then put them in landfill. That's really interesting. So Dylan, do you think we'll ever get to a point where there'll be no catwalk shows? We discuss this a lot at the British Fashion Council and we've explored various different ways of working with the organisations, the other fashion capitals in New York and Milan and Paris about trying to change the system because the system is broken and it has to change. And this is being driven by consumer demand it's being driven by social media it's being driven by the way that the industry works these days plus the idea of flying across the world not just twice a year sometimes four times sometimes six sometimes eight a year in order to sit on a chair uh, and watch models wear clothes on a raised podium seems very old-fashioned and i think the interesting thing is that the digital world that we live in was meant to simplify lots of industries, and it hasn't, to a certain extent, simplified the music industry. It hasn't simplified the fashion industry at all. It's actually made it far more complex. But I think the short answer is that this system needs to be looked at. Maybe the future is sort of virtual reality headsets for Fashion Week. It can be so many different things. And the use of technology has been fantastic. And um, as Ali was saying, you look at the way that designers use social media, particularly Instagram, to amplify their brands. It's incredible. But there is a very old-fashioned system, wholesale, retail, buyers, six monthly drops, all of this stuff. And it kind of doesn't make any sense anymore. Talking of digital, Ellie, will you talk to me about some of these fascinating things that I'd never heard of about Stitch Fix and, and gaming and fashion? Yeah, I've just, I'm absolutely obsessed with fashion gaming at the moment. Um, I've just written a piece for Vogue about it. And Basically, there was a massive demographic shift in the last year where mobile gamers, um, 63% of them are now female. Back in the day, in, you know, even in 80s, 90s, you would imagine a sort of teenage boy playing in the basement, playing FIFA with his mates. And that kind of really hasn't 
changed. But then the iPhone came along and mobile games came along. And now, I mean, I can't get on the tube or the bus without seeing a a fully grown man or woman playing kind of Candy Crush Mm -hmm. happily at 7am in the morning. So this this sort of leads into the point about sustainability, I think, is that I started looking at young millennial consumers in China and they don't really make a distinction between their lives online and their real lives, their physical lives. So it's kind of becoming a new revenue stream for fashion brands and it could be the potential answer to all our problems about consumerism and consumption where basically you get a little avatar and you take them on a little journey And you put clothes on them and you can buy the clothes in real life or you can just buy them in the game. And certainly for a Chinese consumer, if they've got a virtual version of a Gucci dress for 10,000 yen, that feels exactly the same sense of gratification as if they physically owned it in real life. That Uh, is mind-blowing. Which would deal with the problem of, you know, we have too much stuff. We all have too many clothes in our wardrobes. We're creating more and more clothes every year. You know, landfill is a big problem. We've £140 million worth of clothes going to landfill every year in the UK. It's just horrifying. Is part of the reason that those players get the same hit from buying a Gucci gown because their friends are playing the same game and they get to see what Absolutely. everyone's wearing? So it's all about this kind of digital community where all your friends can see that you've chosen this specific Gucci handbag and your avatar's wearing it on the game. Uh, in the same way that I guess on Instagram, you know, you might get a hit from seeing your friend with something. You know, And the thing about influencer culture as well is that, you know, a lot of us know that those influencers have been given those clothes and are wearing them once and then sending them maybe back to the brand. So that doesn't feel very sustainable either. And so I think, I think the whole idea about owning something that needs to change if, yeah. if we're going to kind of move forward in terms of how we consume. What's your take on sustainability, Dylan? I think it's become something that more consumers are concerned about it than ever, ever before. And I think this is fascinating because we have a lot of conversations about electronic cars and about the fact that they haven't reached tipping point. And the tipping point for this renewed interest, passion almost, a passion that that actually changes consumer habits in terms of sustainability was David Attenborough, one television program. And you you can trace this back. And I, I can't remember something being so transformative. And it's completely altered the not just consumer patterns, but also you go into a you go into a bar, you go into a, a hotel, you go into anywhere. You know, you don't see plastic straws anymore. Uh, and this it's it happened really quickly because the consumers were changing their patterns and they were demanding change. And they are demanding change. The problem with fashion is that by its very nature, (laughs) fashion changes every five minutes. Mm -hmm. And it has to. It it is fashion. But it needs big companies and a lot of the big companies that are producing cheap fashion on a global scale to address this. Because the thirst is there, the interest is there, the passion is there. I see it in my daughters. uh, And they want to consume in a better way, but they need help from people who are actually in the manufacturing and design business. We did another episode actually with an amazing woman called Cindy who's at the forefront of developing a cutting edge technology whereby the circularity of cotton production is made complete so that instead of growing more cotton, you use the offcuts and the raw materials to create a new material which again, I'd never heard of. Do you think that big brands are 
open to that kind of development, Ellie? Absolutely. I think they're I think they are waking up to it as a result of consumer pressure and as a result of it being in the media and on the front pages pretty much every day at the moment, which is quite astounding. And there are lots of brands who are, you know, setting themselves targets and trying to really look at their supply chains. But the problem is in fashion is that the supply chain is extremely complex. And over time, a lot of outsourcing has happened so that, you know, raw materials are coming in from God knows where, and really they don't know where, and going through about 25 different stages before they actually get to the final piece. And then as Dylan says, you know, we all fly around the world to go to the fashion show all the samples are then flown to feature in the magazine or get to the stores and then they're given back. And, you know, the carbon footprint of one jacket could end up being kind of thousands and thousands of miles, which is quite insane. And also I was looking at uh, Regent Suite specifically and I think there are loads of schemes now for giving back your clothes unused clothes and um, you know a company like H&M Group has recycled over 20,000 tonnes of unwanted clothes in 2018 alone but there's a kind of disconnect because obviously the fashion brands they have a responsibility to do something but they're also creating the desire in the customer to want to acquire the new things in the first place. Yeah who's doing a particularly good job on a high-end level so the person I always think of is Stella McCartney in terms of you know creating vegan leather and stuff but who who else is doing <laughs> Good stuff, Dylan. You're reaching a stage now where companies have to do something about it. I think that for the last few years, um, lots of companies have pretended to care and pretended to invest. But you can't afford to do that anymore. And if you look at what the big companies doing, like LVMH and Keering and what have you, they are actually putting their money where their mouth is. And they're doing it probably for, for both reasons. They have to. And they want to. Uh, and you can't not, I mean, at Condé Nest, the, the publishing company that, that publishes Vogue and GQ, we now have a sustainability division. We didn't have one a year ago. Wow. That's very impressive. Well, let's talk about both of your magazines because print, in your cases, seems to be flourishing. Vogue has had the, their best ABC yeah, figures. Yeah, we, well, we've had a great couple of years since Edward came on board. I think everyone likes to talk about the death of print, but that's certainly not the case at Condé Nast. And um, our September issue of the Duchess of Sussex was something I worked on closely, and it was the highest figure in eight years, circulation for that issue. It will be, I think, probably our best September issue of all time. Wow. After just 12 days of going on sales, sales of that September issue had already overtaken the entire sales amount for previous September issue last year. We couldn't really have had a better set of results. And I think that goes back to my point that I was making earlier that our readers, they want to buy the magazine, but they also want to read on mobile and they want to come to events. It's a kind of, it's meant to be a 360 proposition. You mentioned Edward there, who's Edward Ennenfall, for the, the, yes. the editor of Vogue, for anyone who doesn't know. But I think part of the reason why Vogue is doing so well is because it feels so much more inclusive than maybe it felt in the past. And is that something that you're really proud to be part of? Absolutely. I think, again, that's something that's been happening culturally in the UK. So it's, it's a history of this country that we have traditionally been very open to people coming and joining our culture and becoming part of it. And that's something that Vogue needed to reflect. And I feel it does. Edward has very much placed diversity and inclusion at the top of the list in terms of the pillars of Vogue and what it stands for now. And I hope that when people open the magazine, they see people who look like them and who sound like them. And that's part of 
what modern culture should be about, reflecting what's going on. And they definitely did see people who looked like them in the September issue because there was a mirror on the front, wasn't there? And <laughs> yeah. it was because I thought that was such a clever idea because it was change makers chosen by the Duchess of Sussex. And her point seems to be, well, you you can be a change maker too. Yeah, I think it was again about showing our readers that here are some amazing women who are doing some incredible things, but also you can be part of that change. And all of us can, you know, make small changes in our lives, whether it's not using single plastic bottles or buying less food that's been flown in from around the world. There are small changes that we can all make on a daily basis that can improve the planet. Dylan, tell me that print magazines are going to be an integral part of the future of fashion. How have you kept GQ so relevant? The thing is that, I mean, nobody likes to see people lose their jobs. And there's been a lot of closures in all magazine sectors. But I like to think that we've remained not just solvent, but in rude health and like Vogue, print is growing for GQ. I think because we've always operated at, at, at the top end of the market, and I think particularly in the men's magazine market, if you go back 20 years, there were a lot of sort of entry-level publications for entry-level men. And uh, What's an entry-level man? <laughs> the kind of man who would have bought FHM or Loaded or Maxim nuts. or Nuts yeah, or okay. Zoo. And actually, for a while, they sort of soiled the <laughs> uh, quite literally the men's magazine market. But um, we've always been committed to top-end journalism, to top-end photography, etc., etc. Et so it's, it's very difficult to talk about this without sounding incredibly pompous about it. But mm. um, it's about quality. And I think that one of the interesting things... Uh, and this is borne out certainly by the growth of sales of our app and also uh, if you if you look at the success of broadsheet newspapers who have put up paywalls uh, on their websites, you look at the Washington Post, you look at Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Economist, the FT. I think there is beginning to be a reappreciation of expertise. And I think there is so much rubbish. There's so much crap. There's so much fake news. And I know talking about fake news is a cliche, but it's out there. And people want places they can trust. And whether that's in finance, whether it's in strict news or lifestyle, whatever it is, people want to consume things that they can trust. And if you are a trusted brand, you will succeed. And I think people absolutely want that curation as well. They want, because there's so much information in the world, whether you're talking about fashion or news stories, you're just assailed by it all the time. And you sort of want someone to do the effort for you as you say, who you trust. Yeah, I think that um, if you look at the, the success of newspapers and magazines and the growth of, of new, newsletters, it's all about your own compendium. And I, I, I remember flippantly once saying to a journalist, well, there's nothing in GQ that you can, could, couldn't get anywhere anywhere else. And he, that was obviously spun and turned into a very bad thing, a negative mm. thing that I'd said about the magazine. But it's in the things that we choose. Yeah. We choose them and you're basically buying our taste. And if yeah, enough a, people like taste. our taste, yeah. then you win. Absolutely. I think taste is a really important element of, of Vogue and GQ. It's that you, you are buying something that is Vogue or GQ approved. That's important. Dylan, you've been editor of GQ. How long is it for now? Since God was a boy. <laughs> 20 years. What do you think is the biggest change that you've noticed in your fashion spreads? That's an interesting question. I would say 
that the biggest change is that men are far more liberal in their clothing choices now. They're probably still not as sophisticated as women are. But if you look back at the consumer patterns over the last 20, 30, 40 years, I mean, you take the 80s, for instance. In the 80s, you had... You had Bond Street, you had Carnaby Street, streetwear, and you had Paul Smith. And and that was sort of it. And now there's something for everyone. So what brands are doing this particularly well and are being incredibly innovative when it comes to future trends? Dylan, can I start with you? Well, I spend a lot of time and a lot of money in Tommy Hilfiger in Regent Street. And they have uh, sort of a lot of interactive things in their store now, particularly in the mirrors in their changing rooms. Uh, But also the levels of sort of attention that the staff you get from the staff now has changed completely because I think um, customers are becoming more valued. Ellie, do you have anyone that springs to mind? Well, Mulberry have a beautiful store near the end of Regent Street, which has just been uh, redesigned by Studio Too Good. And it's uh, been a kind of an amazing place for them, I think, to attract a new customer of lots of VR interactions that they're doing. They did an amazing kind of video light projection event during Fashion Week. So it's definitely um, a place that they've sort of put their stamp on it, but it's allowed them to host lots of events there and bring in, bring in younger customers. What are your favourite brands on Regent Street then, but that might perhaps be more established? Uh, well, I'm a cliche. I like I like Burberry, Burberry and Apple. <laughs> <laughs> also, have to say, being close to Apple is quite useful um, and expensive. Useful and expensive. <laughs> yeah, having having technological meltdowns and going in there and having a cry and getting a genius <laughs> to help me. I love and other stories. I love Arquette. I think Arquette's particularly brilliant coming back to the sustainability thing. They've Every item you buy there, you can trace its supply chain, which I think is great. Um, and in terms of the quality of the clothes, I think it's fantastic. Dylan was talking there about men's fashion. And I wonder if you see that there is less of a distinction now between quote unquote male and quote unquote female fashion, Ellie. Yeah, definitely. I think that dial has been moving for a while. And certainly, you know, stores like Selfridges have experimented with mixing menswear and womenswear on the same floor. I'm quite tall and got very long arms, so I buy quite a lot of menswear myself and I've never really made a distinction between, oh, this is a menswear jacket or a womenswear jacket. I think people have confidence now to to kind of go everywhere and I think the streetwear movement has really helped with that because lots of these kind of sweatshirts and t-shirts and kind of athleisure wear are made are unisex so you can kind of be wearing your you know I hate that phrase borrowed from the boys I think that's (laughs) gone totally out of um, our lexicon now thank god but definitely like sharing clothes between couples is is uh, is on the rise. Yeah, the boyfriend jean. Yeah, I hate that. <laughs> boyfriend I've, jacket. I've been wearing my wife's Bellstaff jacket for years. You've got hey. a wife jacket. Of course I have. <laughs> <laughs> it feels as if another, for, just from my perspective as a, as a kind of bystander of all of this, that one of the things that's really happened is that clothes have got a lot more comfortable and that fashion, I feel used to be about sort of restriction and belting yourself up and wearing incredibly high heels as a woman. Whereas now, maybe because of the athleisure wear and streetwear. Do you think that that's happened, Dylan? It's happened. It hasn't replaced that sort of formality uh, that you describe. And I think it's easy to forget that there are a lot of people, particularly a lot of men, who work in finance and rather conservative 
um, sectors who, who are still expected to wear a suit, not always to wear a tie, but there is a, a certain formality. And frankly, I think that there are there are places for that. I mean, if my lawyer suddenly started looking like some of the designs that some of our young designers produce, I think I would worry because <laughs> I think that his mind possibly wasn't totally on on the job but i think the most important thing is that there is now something for literally everyone regardless of what of what kind of sex you are what kind of age you are there is beginning to be something for everyone because we live in a bespoke world and that's really important and uh, you can choose everything you can choose how your jacket looks you can you can choose what's between your legs you can literally choose everything and that's great for people listening who possibly can't afford high-end labels and um, have an ethical conscience and they want to shop sustainably, what would you advise, Ellie, if they're shopping on a budget and they want to do better? Well, I think it's about arming yourself with knowledge. And as a consumer, you have the power to ask questions and ask difficult questions. So I, w- I would say, you know, maybe if you if you're concern about the ethical status of the clothes that you think you might like to buy, then many websites now have a section where you can try and track your clothes. But I think also, you know, fast fashion generally gets blamed for a lot of the sustainability issues in fashion. And and I think high-end brands, a lot of them need to deal with the issues as well. But I really do think that an investment coat that is going to last you genuinely 20 years, you know, I'm wearing a jacket today that I know is, you know, a classic camel shape. I'm going to wear it probably for the rest of my life. And I have clothes that belong to my grandmother that I still wear, an Aquascutum trench coat that's been through thick and thin with me all the way through university and I now wear it at Vogue. So I think there are different ways to shop for different events and different things, um, but you you need to sort of arm yourself with the knowledge of the, the quality of what you're purchasing is, is going to be durable, sustainable, that's going to last. Would you agree with that, Dylan? Yeah, I would. And also I think that... Um, I think it's interesting to look at men's consumer patterns because although men shop in a very different way uh, to the way that they exclusively shopped, um, say, 20 years ago, I think a lot of men, when they start shopping, they're basically filling their wardrobe. So they say, well, I don't have a blue jacket, so I'm going to buy a blue jacket. And I don't have a pair of brown shoes, so I'm going to pair of brown shoes. And rather than relentlessly being driven by trend... They're driven by objects and by particular garments. And I think I still shop like that, really. I, I, been, I haven't got one of those, so maybe I want one, rather than saying, well, this is in fashion and I should wear it. And also, a lot of stuff that is in fashion is inappropriate for me anyway. Because <laughs> I'm nearly 40. Who knew? <laughs> You're not even live yet, actually. <laughs> I'm quite a big fan of lists and I've got I've started doing a a list on my iPhone of of things that I want to buy and how much they cost. And then I and I wait 2 weeks before I allow myself to purchase whatever I have in my digital shopping basket. Because if I I keep coming back to it and I think I would like to buy it, then I know that you know it hasn't just been a kind of passing whim. And then if you keep a track of how much money you've spent as well that can be really useful to see where your money's going and then in six months time look back and think gosh how much where did I get out of that sequin top that I thought was going to change my life or you know and how many times have I worn those jeans that I really really thought I needed and it has really cut down the amount of things I've bought and it has made me think of 
buying things that I know I can wear in 20 different ways or 20 different situations rather than, you know, a kind of one-wear wonder. Very good advice. Someone I knew once said that she went into a shop, she found something that she really, really liked, but she didn't allow herself to buy it. And she knew that if she was still regretting it the next day, <laughs> that was a sign that it was worth mm. buying. <laughs> mm. well, I think that two-week period, because if you can't remember it after two weeks, then you know that you weren't really, you didn't really love it. Yeah, I'm a terrible impulse buyer, especially in airports, because I feel like it's, oh, it doesn't matter. That's different. Big That's a whole different Schoolgirl error. Um, I actually once bought a Burberry handbag in an airport, and that was a, a, a rare example of an impulse buy that worked out very well for me. But similarly, it was that thing of how much wear am I going to get out of this? Because it is a substantial investment. And I remember thinking, well, I'm going to use money from a book advance, and it's going to be my object that I will remember having sold that book through. And in a way, it's like a piece of art. Or or a laptop even, because you do get a lot of wear, cost per wear. Mm. So we've talked about technology and sustainability and investment pieces. What if I had to ask you for one more future trend each? What do you think we're going to see in fashion in the next 10 to 20 years? Dylan, can I come to you first? Well, I think that the most important development that we need to initiate to try and reclaim the high street is theatre, and people talk about this a lot, but they have a very sort of myopic idea of what it is. And shopping online is brilliant and convenience, and it's certainly changed the way that we all shop. It's certainly changed the way I shop. But I like, I like shopping. I like going into stores, and I like particularly in Asia, I mean in China, in Korea and Japan, the department stores, they're still blow me away because they're constantly changing particularly in Seoul actually Seoul has a brilliant retail atmosphere a dynamic um, and I like that and I want to see that. and I don't want to turn up somewhere and there's just like a video screen or <laughs> someone do, I mean god forbid street theatre and stuff like that you know like, be like the Edinburgh Festival that's what I thought Festival. you meant by theatre and I was, I was gripping the edge of that <laughs> I know I have to say no, I agree I'm running in the opposite direction um, but I want to be challenged I want there to be a reason for me to go to a store. Having said that, I think that all the department stores in London uh, have a very um, particular DNA. They're all very different. And they know that reinvention is part and parcel of their success. I totally agree with you. I went to Seoul for the first time earlier this year and was so impressed. Amazing, by isn't it? It really is. Yeah. And it feels so dynamic and exciting from what people are wearing on the street to the way they lay out their shops. There's a cat cafe in one corner. There's yeah. like a great sort of mid-range blazer place somewhere else. And there's bubble tea. And I just, I loved it. I really did. And the merchandising is so clever. Uh, the last time I was there, I was, I was doing a story on a particular brand. And this brand had five stores in the in the center of Seoul in all in particular areas the clothing was pretty much the same in each store the bags were the same pretty much everything but the merchandising was brilliant and it was appropriate to the customer that was going mm. to shop in that area just fantastic really taking notice of the customer Ellie what about you what do you think are going to be the future trends well I think um to pick up on what Dylan's just said about taking notice of the customer. I think it's about figuring out 
where your customer is hanging out and where they're spending their time and how they're how they're purchasing things. And a lot of Gen Z and millennial customers are on WhatsApp and on Instagram. And I think we like to think that fashion has become more accessible. And I think actually it's just become more visible. Um, and I think that the next stage needs to be the kind of service that we used to um, associate with going shopping where, you know, the woman at the till knows your name and knows your coffee order. That needs to happen in fashion as well. And lots of brands are, are developing these kind of chatbots where you can WhatsApp your store assistant. They can tell you, oh, happy birthday we've got something new that you might like or and I think you know lots of young people really enjoy that level of service and they perhaps haven't really been getting it or they haven't been getting it on a kind of more relatable level so I would say um, again it comes back to sort of trying harder and, and trying to engage with the customer on the level that they want to engage on. I'd really like to draw this to a close by posing an extremely annoying question to both of you, which I'm sure you must get all of the time. And it's about who you think is the most stylish person currently wearing clothes in the world. Dylan? Still alive. Uh, no, you can have alive or dead, actually. I've just I've changed my mind. Okay. I'm going to pick one of our cover stars. Um, it sounds like a pre-prepared answer, but I've no, I, I did no idea you were going to ask me it's this true. really you annoying did. question. <laughs> but I think for someone who has to occupy a particular position and someone who personifies a very traditional British way of dressing, one that will never die out regardless of what happens elsewhere, I would say Prince Charles. That's such a good call because his suits, even I can tell, are impeccable. They are. And always slightly, there's always a slight edge or twist to them. That's true. Very well observed for your annoying question. <laughs> Thank you, Dillian. <laughs> what about you, Ellie? Well, that's You're unfair. not allowed to say Prince Charles. No, I was going to say the Queen, actually. Oh, wow. But then that makes us sound like real royalists, doesn't no, but it? No, tell us why, the, wrong why the Queen. You can have someone else as well, but I'm interested <laughs> as to why you'd pick the Queen. Well, the Queen, I think she, again, has a sense of occasion at all at all occasions. She's always, she's just immaculate constantly. She has her own very strict sense of style that she doesn't deviate from apart from the kind of the beautiful array of colours. I think she wears colour better than anyone else in the world. That kind of rainbow spectrum, you never quite know what she's going to wear. I think that's fabulous. And for someone kind of so patrician and to still be wearing kind of bright pink in her 90s is great. I yeah. love that. You should see her snowboarding gear. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, with snowboarding, she goes all black because she does something really unexpected. Incognito, yeah. <laughs> oh, Ellie Pithers, Dylan Jones, thank you so, so much for talking to me. It's thank been an you. utter delight. Fun. And please join us next time on Shaping the Future by Regent Street when we'll be talking about celebrations. Thank you so much for tuning in to Shaping the Future by Regent Street. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please do take a minute to rate, review and subscribe. It really does help other people to find the show. Follow more Regent Street happenings at Regent Street W1 on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Otherwise, head over to regentstreetonline.com for more detailed information. This has been Shaping the Future by Regent Street with me, your host, Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth Day.